Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have Matt Weirich, who's the co-founder and CEO of Reallink. Matt, welcome. Appreciate it. Excited to be on. Why don't we start with a quick pitch for Reallink and we'll go from there. Absolutely. So Relink is multifamily's only video leasing solution. And that's just a fancy way of saying we've built a technology platform that allows multifamily owners and managers to do a couple different things. They can host live video tours for prospective residents, walk through the space in real time, show them what they want to see, answer their questions, but also create pre-recorded tours. These are cloud-based trackable, shareable, embeddable tours that can sit on their website, be sent out via text or email to an individual to showcase the property, show them what they want to see, and ultimately get eyes on it quicker, sooner, and in more efficient ways. Has it always been multifamily? No. So we, when my co-founder and I first launched Reallink up in Chicago back in... 2013, 2014, uh, we were actually focused on the for sale side of the industry. Uh, We were going after residential brokers, brokerages, and that was where we thought the the use case would be. But we spent a lot of time figuring out that product market fit and kind of fell into multifamily. We had an early advisor of the business, uh, Waterton Residential up in Chicago. We, we tout them as our number one multifamily client, first one ever, and they really opened our eyes up to the opportunities in the space. And then um, it wasn't... Our eyes weren't open to the opportunity until we went to a multifamily conference, pitched in a competition. It was a crowd vote for who won. And we took second place without anyone ever hearing about us before that. So that really opened our eyes yeah. to just how powerful this could be for multifamily. And Here we are five-ish years later and about 100,000 units on the platform and we're we're not looking back. Keep going on some of those kind of current status metrics. 100,000 units hit me with any other kind of vanity metrics or key indicators. Uh, Could be fundraise, employees, things like that. Anything for somebody listening to get an idea of how big you guys are? Absolutely. So we just hit the biggest milestone for our business, 1 million ARR. Dude, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So that was a big milestone for us. Felt like it was a long time coming, but super excited to eclipse that mark. Uh, We also have services revenue along with our recurring. But milestone-wise, we're a a lean team. So we're proud of that 1 million ARR off of a team of six people. So we're very lean, very small. We hired two people in uh, 2019 last year. And otherwise, we're in about 100,000 units, like I mentioned, 53 enterprise clients. Uh, Reallink's being used in 43 different states, I believe. And on the platform, we have about 13,000 videos, pre-recorded videos, and coming up on about 200,000 tours of properties that have happened. That's awesome. What's the name of the firm in Chicago again? Waterton. Waterton. So did Waterton approach you or did you approach them? So it was an interesting scenario. We, back in the day, went through an accelerator program. It was called Elmspring. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a real estate-focused accelerator program in Chicago. Only a real estate. Only. Anything would call it Elmspring. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and we were the guinea pig class. We were the very first class class. 
I wish I had better things to say about the experience as a founder, but I do have them to owe for us finding our product market fit. So through that accelerator, Waterton was a partner of the accelerator. Okay. So we got some contacts at Waterton. Surprisingly, actually, we got into Waterton like two months before we started the accelerator. So it was just a coincidence, but we deepened those relationships with Waterton. We were able to run a larger test case and pilot with them because of the accelerator program and whatnot. And it was really those immediate results that opened our eyes to the multifamily space. And we, it was powerful enough that we couldn't not lean into that and put all of the residential sales, commercial sales, all of that behind us. So super thankful for that. And that is that is one of the things. If you ask my co-founder and I, the number one lesson we've learned out of this startup journey, it is sprinting to that product market fit. And looking back, we wasted a lot of time in the first year and a half, two years of the business chasing shiny objects. Um, we we may or may not, even though we're a real estate technology company, we may or may not have made a promo video for RV sales at one point. Ah. That is deep in the archives of our cloud storage and hopefully never arises outside of talking about it. But yeah, there were a lot of shiny objects early on. So you must have thought at one point before the multifamily pivot, you must have thought you had product market fit. So like explain that difference between like, oh yeah, we have product market fit. We have people paying us for the product. They like it, they use it versus holy crap. Like we've really got something here. Like talk, talk, like how did you guys know that you finally had product market fit? That's a that's a great question actually and I I haven't really reflected on that before but looking back it it was pulling teeth trying to get real estate agents and real estate brokers and commercial brokers to use the platform find success on the platform pay us for the platform and even though we did have people technically signed up and technically using it it was way too much effort, way too forced. And there was no natural growth. Forced meaning you're bugging them to upload videos. You're asking them, hey, is there anything we can do to edit that for you? Can we handle that? Like, I'm just, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We had to do way too much. It wasn't a natural B2B SaaS growth model. We were way too hands-on. And with multifamily, when we had those first three properties sign up, they jumped right in, sunk their teeth into it, started using the platform in ways we hadn't even thought of before. And they were teaching us stuff about what our platform can be, what it can do, and what success looks like on it. And really, at the end of the day, there we weren't capturing any ROI stories from working with realtors and brokers. There wasn't a real value proposition being built. And I'd say that's probably at the end of the day, back to your question, that is the one thing that was different. There was no value proposition being built with brokers. With multifamily, that ROI, was, that story was written almost immediately. Yeah, that's a, that was a great question. I, I hadn't been asked that before. And so I'd say it really was... Numbers driven, looking at looking at the ROI, looking at the value proposition, and 
the organic nature of how how they were using it and and sinking in now. I guess another thing related to that pivot going from, you know, probably individual users to the commercial multifamily user, how did you pivot pricing along with that? Which you're more than happy to, more than welcome to talk about pricing, um, but I'm more interested in just like philosophically, structurally, like how did that change the way you thought about it? And, and then what did you ultimately implement as a framework for that? Yeah, there was a lot to be figured out for pricing. For for residential agents and brokers, we were just doing a flat monthly fee per person. And that was a model that could have made sense for a brokerage with 100 brokers. But when you switch to multifamily properties, they they could have two, maybe three leasing right. people at the property. And what we now have found is that out of a three-person leasing team, there may be one person that is the religious Relink user and the other two are kind of subsidiary. They'll dabble here and there. And that per-person model did not work for multifamily. So then we, thankfully, going back to Waterton, having mentors at the company there, we actually sat down with their CEO and had a very transparent pricing conversation like, hey, this is this is brand new to us. Help us out. And he had some recommendations on what we could do of a per unit cost or just a bigger flat fee per property. And so we went with the bigger flat fee per property. Sounded great. And he said, this is what all the technology companies in multifamily are charging. Not accepted whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) We, we tried it and looking back, because we did not have the data to justify that price point, no one went for it. And it was always the first thing to be brought up and negotiated way down. And so that didn't stick. So then we went to per unit pricing, tried that out for a little bit. And what we found with that, while it was acceptable, it discouraged larger properties from signing up. They have more units, their price is higher, they don't want to pay more. And it was also, I've never seen anything get negotiated more than that per unit price. When in normal contract negotiations, you expect some back and forth, wanting a 30 day out or different terms. And that per unit price just got beaten up every single time. And so we had a starting point, but we never got that starting point. And so finally, we went back to the flat fee per property, but we based it off of the per unit price, did some average math around what our average property size is going to be, looked at where we want our margins to be and all of that, came up with the price, set it, and it stuck, thankfully. So... We we initially the initial price that we set out in the industry that really stuck was a flat two hundred fifty dollars a month, three thousand dollars a year, unlimited live tours, unlimited videos, everything, and it it was great. And then since then, I would say probably the end of twenty eighteen, we we started looking at our services side of the company. We actually have more client success managers than we do salespeople. We're very heavy on client success, partnering with our clients to ensure that they're trained, they're equipped. When it comes to video, on-site leasing agents are rarely proficient at videography. So we do have a heavy training component to the business and we just kind of 
threw it in as a loss leader initially to get people to use it. When I get when I create a video, I, sorry, I, I just want to interject because I want to make sure I have the right model in my head. In in my head, I feel like if I've got a 300 unit property that's got five different floor plans, in my head, I'm creating five videos, and those are the same five videos I'm going to use forever, forever's in quotes, right? Like until we update the floor plan or whatever. So like in my head, I'm just, I'm thinking I only need to go create five videos. Like, why would you have to train me that much? Is that not the case? Am I creating more than five videos? Am I creating a video every time somebody moves out? So that's the benefit of Relink is these experiences a lot of times are personalized to the prospect. So you hit the nail on the head. Most teams, their first goal when they launch Relink at a minimum is to get a video of every floor plan, which you'd be surprised. I would say the average multifamily property has... 12 to 15 plus floor plans. Uh, we have we have clients that have 50 plus unique floor plans in their buildings, which okay. is crazy. Wow. But that's the minimum is they want videos of their floor plans and then videos of their amenities that they can in an instant show out, yep. send out. Since a lot of company properties have been on Relink for four plus years now, we actually have seen a lot of these teams want unit specific videos. So today's consumer, they're they're over photoshopped ads, they're over fake staged fabricated experiences. They just want to see the real thing. And so the real videos being unit specific, if I know you're looking for a one bed, one bath, you want a beautiful kitchen and lots of natural light. I now, if I have unit specific videos and know that these five units are going to be available in your timeline, I can pull those five videos, send them to you on a playlist. And all of a sudden, you're looking at the exact unit that you could be living in. And even before you step foot on the property to tour it in person, if you even end up doing so, you've narrowed it down to your top few choices. You've probably had half of your questions already answered. And you're coming in at a different decision-making level. So yeah, that's a great question. Um, A lot of teams... The average Relink user today has 36 videos in their account. So definitely goes beyond just those uh, floor plan videos. But back to the... Well, wait, what's the what's the most videos a user has in their account? <laughs> so we do have some accounts with over a thousand videos wow. in them. But those are, those are different use cases. We've got a, an apartment marketing slash brokerage company up in Chicago that represents a lot of properties. Nice. And then we also have a large corporate housing provider where they will be in a market but have five units in this building, five units in this building. And so it, those are those are kind of the different use cases. The one property that comes to mind, there's one up in Chicago that has been sprinting to get unit specific coverage and then also does an incredible job of personalizing videos for a lead. Uh, so in Relink, you can create a copy of a video and then do a voiceover on it. And so within seconds, you can say, hey, Michael, it was great talking to you today. I wanted to show you a video of this unit. I think it will really fit your needs. And within seconds, I've got a personalized video that I can send to you. Yeah, And that really stands out from the noise. So uh, there's a property in Chicago. I think last I saw, they were up to 280 videos for one single property. And I think their total unit count is like 220. So they have more videos than they have units. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Sorry, I cut you off. 
No, you're good. I was just going to go back to the pricing model. Um, and when we were talking about the training component of it being so big for us, uh, when we were going through that pricing journey, we felt like we figured out the flat fee per property that was sticking. It was uh, actually no longer being negotiated for a majority of clients. And then we started looking at all of the money we were spending on training and decided to introduce a services component. So then we required a setup and services fee where we will physically send one of our client success managers to the property, train the team in person. We'll actually record the first five videos for them to have in their account while we're on site training. We give them a DJI Osmo anti-shake gimbal and then a wide angle lens that can clip on their device as well. And really in 90 minutes of being on site, we can equip that team for so much more success by being able to look someone face to face, see who's freaked out about video, who's excited and really train into that. And ever since then, we've mandated that setup and services fee. And we've actually at the uh, about the middle of last year, 2019, we increased all of our prices, the monthly fee and the services fee as well. But thankfully, that was just a result of having a lot of data supporting it and being able to actually do dollar value ROI analysis to prove the platform. Did you lose any customers when you increased price? Knock on wood, we actually have not. Awesome. Um, One of the numbers we are most proud of as a company is that we have a 98.6% retention rate with clients. And about 1% of that churn is because the property sells or the company loses management of it. Right on. That's awesome. Absolutely. So you don't get brought along in the sale? Uh, if they if they sell, then the new company doesn't want to keep the service and it, keep things going. It's rare. Uh, we have held on to a few properties after a sell or change in management. It's typically a clean break. The thing in multifamily, there are really three big technology platforms that are the front end to back end systems: RealPage, Yardy, and Entrada. And there's a growing number that fill out the top ten, and it's. It's typically rare that the old owner or manager and the new owner or manager have the same systems. So they're typically coming in, cleaning house, and they'll want to re-execute a new agreement anyways. So it's back to ground zero, trying to resell into it. Got it. Talk a little bit about the future. And there's two ways that I'm interested in this answer. One, and we'll do the, the, the first one will maybe be the business focus. So multifamily today, I can immediately in my head see somebody in office space, you know, commercial office space using this. Uh, I'm renting the Willis Tower. I've got your student space. I've got 30 units that I could put you in, right? So like, why, why not send you a video? And then uh, potentially retail as well. So I'd be interested in your thoughts just as a, you know, from a real estate perspective, where do you think it goes? Or you're like, yeah, no, we would go back to, you know, residential sales before uh, any of those. And then the second part of the question, which we'll, we'll circle back to, but I'll prime the pump now would be from a technology perspective, what are trends that you see or things that you see coming that you guys may want to take advantage of that you haven't been able to play around with yet? Um, so maybe first jump in on the real estate side and, and where are you guys going? A lot of room left in multifamily. There are over 20 million units in the US alone and we're in 100,000. So a lot of room for growth. We are tripling down our efforts on multifamily. We've got 
a growing list of enterprise clients and a lot of room for growth in just those enterprise clients. So if we actually didn't sell a single new logo and just worked on getting full penetration across our existing enterprise clients, we would 20x our revenue. So a lot of room for growth there. It's a great, it's a great, well said. Absolutely. Um, So we're focused on what we have and where we're going. But that being said, tons of room for horizontal growth. If I were going to go out and woo a bunch of VCs for some money, which thankfully I am not doing right now, but uh, if I were going to, I would really focus on the horizontal growth in real estate because we are just multifamily. But that multifamily umbrella is your traditional market rate apartment community. It's affordable properties, student living, senior living, short-term corporate housing, and so much more. So there's a lot going on within multifamily. Military housing is technically in that realm when we've got clients in all of those, which is great. But with retail, with commercial, with residential, uh, with vacation rentals now, uh, Airbnb, VRBO, all of these platforms, there's so much opportunity to grow into those. And so if we're looking at technically our total market opportunity on a VC slide, yeah. it's the broader real estate space. And we have inroads and connections into all of those. But uh, again, with product market fit, trying to stay laser focused and avoid those shiny objects. If we were to branch out anywhere, it'd probably be into that commercial retail space initially, pr- mostly because a lot of multifamily communities are mixed use. Mixed use, yeah. It's it's just one of those one of those use cases that makes so much sense. The decision maker for a lot of these commercial decisions is not in market. These uh, these companies that own and manage franchises may be based in New York City, but they're leasing space in Indianapolis, in Kansas City, in San Francisco. They're doing all of this all across the US. And so the cost savings that we could bring to them purely from evaluating their assets before sending a team out to do it in person and check their list and all of that could be huge. Um, but the go to market's different. Because the commercial broker isn't necessarily incentivized to save their client money, time and energy, maybe, but it's really it's those corporate teams and those corporate decision makers that we would really have to target in the go-to-market strategy on that. Got it. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. All right, technology. When do I get the real link drone to fly through my building and automatically <laughs> automatically capture video? You had to say drones. I'm surprised our director of operations, Jordan, isn't busting into this conference room <laughs> right now. He has been wanting to introduce drones into Real Link for the last two years uh, as 
I, I may have gotten him a a cheap practice drone for Christmas this year for him to play around with. Nice. The the video quality on it is like 1992 pixelated, horrible quality. So it was very much a practice drone. But no, there's there's a lot of a lot of growth in terms of where the platform's going. We've actually been hosting uh, what we call Real Talk with Reallink events all across the U.S. to bring our clients into a room and collect their real, raw, genuine feedback on the platform, what's working, what's not working. And then we put our technology roadmap in front of them. All right, pause. Uh, unpack that meeting for me. How do you reach out? Because I'm genuinely interested. We might want to do this with some of our companies. So like, how do you reach out to position that talk? How many people in the room? How do you host it? What are your follow-ups? Like, Just break that whole experience down for me. Yeah, these Real Talk with Real Link events are incredibly powerful. We're setting them up as an exclusive group of our highly valued clients. And for, for the meeting, we're targeting between 10 and 14 people, not a yeah. huge group. And I because we have different decision makers throughout the company, we've got our corporate stakeholders, and then we've got the on-site people who are the nuts and bolts users. Yeah. Our goal is to get a corporate stakeholder and an on-site leasing agent from each client. So two people from each client, 10 to 14 people in the room. And we've actually been doing them as breakfast meetings. So we bring them in, start of the day, two, two and a half hours in the room. And the agenda is really have them... Have them just give their raw feedback, what's working, what's not working, share use cases and examples. How do you prep them for that? Leading in the meeting, what like what are you giving them as kind of a way to prime the pump? Because I can imagine pulling five users into a room and being like, what do you like? And just getting <laughs> straight faces, right? Like nobody saying anything. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're really setting the expectation in advance of what the agenda is going to be. And we want the people in the room that are going to have a voice, that are going to have feedback. And a lot of the times we've already heard feedback from these teams. Uh, our, our clients do an incredible job of having an open chain of communication with us. And I think that's also a result of our investment in client success. We rarely will go a quarter without being in touch with a property. And so there is that active chain of communication. And so we we really just set the expectation in advance, like, hey, this is called real talk for a reason. We want you to be real with us. Our feelings are not going to be hurt. We're doing this to be better for you. And so, yeah, it's all expectation management on that front. And Thankfully, with that intimate group, when one or two people really start to open up, the the rest of the crew will as well. Yeah, it's all expectation management, setting the stage for it. And honestly, just us living out our core value of being real. Uh, We believe that real is what life is all about. And we try to have that bleed through. And so, yeah, in these meetings, we, we run through their feedback. We run through their use cases and success stories and try to capture uh, any and all uh, success stories that we can have them sharing ideas amongst the crew. And then we present our product roadmap and we actually have them rank our product roadmap on what they think would be most valuable for them, what we should prioritize. We get their feedback on how we could change this a little bit to be more integrated or better uh, set up for success. So we're, we're really using our clients heavily to guide the direction of the product right now. Okay. I have so many questions. <laughs> what has been your experience 
of hosting one of those events and then increasing sales within one of the companies that attends, right? So assuming you've got a company that shows up where you, you, you're you in five of their 20 buildings, they go to one of those events. And on the other side of that, now suddenly you're in 10 of their 20 buildings. Directly correlated. Okay. I, I wish we were betting 100% on that, but there's a very direct correlation. Uh, following one of our events here in Indianapolis, uh, I want to say... Two months later, we got approval to get into a portion of their portfolio that we prior were not approved to get into. And that was completely unbeknownst to us. It was actually one of my clients that I work with. And I had no idea that they were selling this internally and championing it for us on our behalf. Typically, we're involved in that growth process and that upsell. And it was completely organic. They were the ones setting up these meetings, pitching the platform. Uh, our clients have access to their data and the analytics. They were pulling their own analytics and doing their ROI case stories and, and everything. And so, yeah, that was the most direct result of that in-person Real Talk event. They they went back on fire for the platform and where it's going and what it could do for their company at a larger scale. And we went from in... In Q4, we went from, I want to say, 12 properties with them to about 55 in one quarter. Right on. Yeah. Any correlations that you can draw between those events and referrals into the market where you host the event? I wish there was more of a correlation there. Um, We do have a formal referral campaign and network, and it's, it's tough in multifamily because a lot of... Owners and managers lock down the incentives that on-site teams can take from vendors. And so uh, this is something we're still trying to figure out is how we can incentivize our clients to provide referrals for us and what the rules and regulations are at one company versus the other. And so that's that's a very active path that we're trying to figure out and how we unlock that. Uh, we have had some decent results from referrals to date, but it could be a lot better. Got it. All right. I'm going to switch gears. If I gave you $500,000 right now as an investment, and I know you're not raising money, but I'm I'm just genuinely curious. If you just got a big pile of cash right now, how much of that would you spend on marketing and where would you spend it? Mm. Honestly, I the biggest portion of that would not go to marketing. The biggest portion of that would go to hiring. Uh, like I mentioned, we're hiring for customer success or hiring development or yes. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so we we do have aggressive hiring goals for 2020. Uh, ideally, by the end of the year, we'll bring on five more people, which is almost doubling the size right. of our team. Yeah. We're six full time people right now outside of our engineers. Really, I mean, you're also talking to one third of the sales team right now. We actually don't have a full time salesperson. So when we talk about hitting that 1 million ARR number, we're incredibly proud of that because no one at Reallink is a full time salesperson. And so that is a huge gap for us. And we are actively trying to hire uh, at least one salesperson right now. But we know the impact it could make to bring on a full time sales team, sales leader all the way down to SDRs, people who can be running outbound campaigns, integrating that with marketing to do more demand gen, top of funnel stuff to really build out and formalize that process. 
And then, so sales and marketing, bringing on people, accelerating all of those efforts. So yeah, probably a, a decent chunk of that. 75,000 maybe would go into marketing and increasing those efforts, but really the rest of it would be people and resources and really increasing our human capital and capacity because we are, we are strapped. We, I, I can't even name how many times our team has said there just are not enough hours in the day right now, but good problems to have. We we're trying to bring people on. It is just, it's, it's a really hard market right now to hire in. Uh, we had an employee that was supposed to start with us and in the 11th hour, Airbnb swooped in and offered an offer that we could not match. And that's, that's the economy right now. And I no, no ill will there. I mean, we could not fault that person for taking that offer. And so it's, it's a tough market right now to really be competitive as a startup to attract the right talent. So we really have to lean in people that are passionate about what we're doing and really want to be a part of, part of something big. What's the biggest challenge you face to date? Honestly, the biggest challenge for us is brand awareness. We are we just brought on our director of marketing in Q4 of 2019. Oh, that person's not going to be happy with your answer then <laughs> of how you spend the half million dollars on marketing. Right. Oh yeah. Um, she wants she wants all the marketing budget right. for sure. Yeah. We there was a PR company that we were very, very hopeful and excited to work with. And because of our current marketing budgets, we just couldn't make it work to work with them. But it, it's just one of those things. We have so many enterprise clients and being in 100,000 units, we'll st- still go to conferences. And there are prominent players that have never heard of us. Are there channel partners you could be working with that would... You know, the the other people, whether they're software companies or other who are already working with multifamily companies that you want to get into that have you explored those channel partner relationships? Absolutely. We're definitely leaning into that more and more. Uh, I want to say we're up to nine different integration partners. And three of those were heavily leaning into for full channel partnerships. So actually one company here in Indianapolis that you probably know, Perk, P-E-R-Q. Oh yeah. Great partner of ours. Uh, so we had been working on some roundabout integrations with them for a long time. And then with the launch of the Perk Hub, we launched a formal integration with them, did some great press around it. They've been an incredible partner. And so we're... A, super stoked about the results that our platforms are delivering together, but B, super excited about where we're taking that partnership. We, our director of marketing and their marketing team have already been working on a series of events that we're going to be hosting, co-hosting together at different conferences and things like that across the US. And we really want to lean into more of how our sales teams, I put sales teams in quotes because we don't have a formal sales team, but how we can do more uh, mutual selling and things like that to uh, yeah. uh, to really accelerate things organically from that side. So yeah, I mean, brand awareness is just hard for us. We're trying to do more paid owned and earned media this year, uh, be more of a thought leader in the industry. We're really trying to step up. Uh, we're more than doubling our marketing spend this year. So our director of marketing is happy about that, but it still has a long way to go. So that's definitely been a big challenge for us, especially because I was our marketing team before hiring her and I was doing no one uh, do justice in that role. I I can equate. (laughs) What do you think will be the next big challenge? So fast forward a year from now, you've hired five more people, you've reached 
you know, X million in ARR, what's the next big problem you think you're going to have to solve? So not today's problems. You got to get those out of your head. Right. That's, that's an interesting, interesting question. I feel like as a co-founder, you have to have that macro level scope. You have to forecast out and plan on two, three years. But I also, being six years into the business, I feel like I am a pessimistic optimist when it comes to those forecasts. I I do everything in my power to guide and direct the team and the company to hit those forecasts. But if you're not flexible and you are too focused on the forecast, it's easy to lose sight of a lot of other things going on. So that's that's a roundabout way of saying... I actually couldn't tell you what the problems two years from now are. There are plenty of, I wouldn't even call them problems, opportunities that we're working on today and working to overcome. And I I don't have the mental capacity to really think on or really dwell on the, the, the problems or opportunities of tomorrow. Uh, if I had to put a pin in one of them, I would say it's probably managing a diverse workforce in different markets. Uh, we started the company in Chicago. My co-founder is still in Chicago. We're technically headquartered here in Indy. We have an employee in Virginia. Um, we looked at hiring an employee in Atlanta. 90% of the people we're interviewing right now for an open position are not in Indianapolis. Our engineers are all over in the Ukraine. There are full-time guys and they have their own office. And so fast forward five, 10 employees from now, I have a feeling the majority of those people are not going to be in Indianapolis here with us. So if I had to put a pin in something, I would say it's figuring out how we manage that workforce while still having as few layers as possible in the business. I really don't want to get manager, director, senior director, SVP. I I don't want it to be a super vertical uh, leadership structure. I want to keep it pretty horizontal. Everyone bought in, owners, things like that. So that that would probably be where my head goes. But again, I try not to try not to spend too much mental capacity on that. Good answer. What are you working on right now yourself to get better? What are you trying to learn? Sleep. Patience. <laughs> it is, uh, yeah, it, it is a constant battle of not working too much. My my wife and I both own our own companies, and it is very easy to get sucked into that. I would say Monday through Thursday, my mo is wake up, work, work out, eat, work, go to bed, and that that's not sustainable. It's not something that we want to be sustainable. And so for for me, I'm working on really that prioritizing things Monday through Friday, trying to minimize meetings, maximize my capacity to work on things and get things done in that nine to five sort of structure. But there's never a nine to five. There's no nine to five. Never a nine to five. So for me, I'm really working on that prioritization, really working on letting not letting things go per se, because things have to get done, but understanding that I don't have to stay up till three in the morning to get this thing done. It's okay to work on it tomorrow and deliver it the day after. And that's something that I've just never been good at. If something's on my plate, I want to knock it out and get it done. 
And uh, I say all that kind of tongue in cheek as I was up till 2 a.m. working last night. So it's a it's a constant battle for me and something I'm I'm always working on. But it's also also that fine balance and trying to trying to manage that with our team as well. Being a lean team, everyone has way too much on their plate. And my co-founder and I say it all the time, the day it's no longer fun, it's no longer worth it. And as a lean team, we we can't afford to have turnover. We need our team to be bought in. We need them to be fulfilled with what they're doing. And so it, as a CEO, it's trying to figure out how I can maximize people's capacities while also maximizing their joy and fulfillment of the job as well. So yeah, trying to lean into all of that and uh, trying to focus on some of those things as a leader of a business. Does the data, which I can't quote a study or anything, but the, the data that's out there that would indicate that you know your team is going to take their lead from you in terms of how they should be behaving and how the, what their work pattern should look like. If the CEO is sending an email at midnight, does that mean that I need to be watching my email at midnight kind of a thing? How much does that weigh into your... And, and I'm bringing this up potentially as a tool to help you. Right. Because, <laughs> like, you know, for you, I would say this about myself. It's, it's I'm, I could not care less about my own health, my own, what I, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm perfectly willing to put myself through whatever torture I want to put myself through to get something done. But I am very keenly aware of or try to be like what, what behaviors I exhibit what message that's sending to the team in terms of what behaviors they should be exhibiting. Does that, do you, do you weigh that in your thinking about what you're doing and how much time you're spending versus, you know, what the team sees? So as an Enneagram three, yes. Part of me wants the team to see how hard I'm working, how much I'm putting in, how many hours I'm working. But I have also, acknowledged and recognized that is the three in me and that's not healthy. And so I've actually, you could ask anyone on the team. I have tried to over communicate. Like, look, if I send an email at 11 o'clock at night or I send a Slack message, do not feel like you have to respond. Do not, if there are questions in it, I'm not asking those questions, expecting a response, but equally do not expect a response from me at 8 a.m. the next morning. I, I'm a night owl. I'm not a morning person. I'm rarely in the office before nine nine thirty. It just doesn't happen for me. Ooh, but that's like lunchtime for me. <laughs> but I mean, you're a farmer. That makes yeah. sense. <laughs> I, I'm a night owl. I will. I'll always burn the midnight oil, and I I am hyper productive from ten o'clock to midnight, one a.m. And so uh, I try to set no expectation and try to actually set the opposite expectation of, Hey, if you hear from me during these hours, or if I'm plugged in Sunday night, trying to prep for the week, there's no expectation that you respond. And we, we as a team have tried to set that culture at Relink as a broad sweep. We don't care when you're working, where you're working from. All we care about is that you get your work done. We have an unlimited PTO policy. As Again, as long as you're managing things and your clients are taken care of and things are getting done, take care of yourself. Do what you need. And so that's really... I think I'm answering your question, but we're, yeah. we're, we're trying to just set that 
cultural expectation of, hey, you may not be able to reach me from 7 to 9 a.m. in the morning, or I may be unplugged from 3 to 5 p.m. getting a long workout in with my wife, but I'll be plugged in in the evening again, catching up on all that. So work the hours you need to work to get your work done. Doesn't matter when. All right. I'd be remiss if I didn't offer. Do you want to give a quick shout out for your wife's business? Sure. Yeah. So my wife, Teresa Becker, now Teresa Wyrick, she owns TKB Consulting. She is a demand gen marketer, uh, really does uh, content marketing, demand gen marketing for B2B SaaS companies all across the US. So she was a really exact target, uh, was at ET through the Salesforce acquisition, all of that, went out on her own and is now uh, helping B2B SaaS companies do their thing and increase their inbound leads, presence, all sorts of stuff. So all right. don't, don't say anymore. We'll have her on the podcast. There that, you go. That's on point. Awesome. <laughs> all right. People want to get, get in touch with you or learn more about Reallink. How should they do that? Yeah. So you can visit our website, reallink.com, R-E-A-L-Y-N-C. Trips a lot of people up. We have actually tried to hit the SEO for people searching real space link, L-I-N-K. Don't get me started on how many times people have asked us to rebrand, but that's <laughs> that's a different story. No, so you can visit the web website, reallink.com, or email us if you're interested in working with us, working for us, anything like that. Contact at reallink.com. Uh, we've got live chat through the website, all sorts of stuff. Right on. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.